When I was an incoming freshman at Bethel University, I was warned that I would have to take a class called Christianity in the Western Culture, and I was told by several upperclassmen that this class was going to be both boring and difficult. As it turns out, I loved the class. I thought it was extremely interesting. I had some great professors. And as an added bonus, uh, I met the woman who became my wife, Heidi. Uh, so the moral of the story is, sometimes things that you expect to be boring and difficult turn out to be interesting and important. Just keep that in mind, because we're looking at Leviticus today, okay? So that's... <laughs> Uh, we are, it's our, we're continuing our series on overlooked books of the Bible, and we're going to look at Leviticus, and I know that this isn't a book that most of us look to with much excitement. I have to admit, I mean, honestly, I was one hour into trying to do some research and outline this book, and I thought, is this a good idea? Uh, is it too late to pick a different book? Um, but you know, this too is part of God's word. And he included it for a purpose. And I have to admit, uh, I stand here today with a much better and, and I would say richer understanding of Leviticus than I had at the beginning of the week. And my hope is that in a little over a half hour, you will too. Uh, I know I'm always saying this, but the first step toward understanding Leviticus better is appreciating its context. Uh, Leviticus follows right after Exodus, both in the canonical order, but also narratively. Uh, and if we don't understand what happens in Exodus, we will never understand appropriately what's going on in Leviticus. Uh, Exodus is the historical record of the exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt. Uh, God hears the cries of his people. He hears them cry out that they, are, that they are enslaved and that they need to be rescued. God hears their cries and he rescues them. He delivers them from Egypt. He delivers them from the power of Pharaoh. And then he brings them out into the wilderness, into Mount Sinai, to himself, uh, to a mountain where his presence dwells. And there, God enters into a relationship with the nation as a whole. He, he escalates the covenant. Uh, previously, he had made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their families. But here, explicitly, God makes that covenant with the whole nation, the people of Israel, there's a great uh, recap of this in uh, Exodus 19, starting in verse 3. God calls to Moses from the mountain, and he says, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people, and he set before them the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. But what you need to know is that before the ink is even dry on this agreement, Israel breaks it in dramatic and emphatic fashion. They make for themselves an idol out of gold, and they worship it. In other words, uh, they make a mockery of two of the great pillars of the covenant almost right away. Uh, they disobey God explicitly by making this idol and worshiping it. And second, far from living like a holy people, a people set apart, they have behaved in a way exactly like the Egyptians or the Canaanites might have behaved. 
In the narrative, this catastrophic disobedience creates a fork in the road. Uh, Israel has made this agreement. They voluntarily joined the covenant. They chose to partner with God. But now they've broken it. And they've done it emphatically. What I mean by that is they did it in a way so that nobody was really without excuse. Anyone who participated in the worship of that idol would have known and should have known that there is no way that Yahweh, their God, was going to be okay with this. And so the question is, and it's a big question, what is God going to do now? Uh, Can this partnership ever actually work if Israel fails to keep the covenant? And if they can't keep it, will God now recognize that this was a mistake and just end the covenant and be done with it and be done with Israel? Or will God make a way to repair it? Well, the short answer is that after some powerful intercession by Moses, God chooses not to end his covenant with Israel, not to destroy them or leave them, but rather to make a way for the relationship and partnership to be repaired. That is, I think, in essence, what we have in Leviticus. Even without the dramatic episode in the golden calf, we would know, just by looking at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, that Israel is not going to be able to fully keep this covenant. God knows it too. And so what he does in this book is he provides a means of maintaining their relationship, their partnership, despite periodic failures. Uh, so, funny little thing happened Friday. I, I'm up at my in-law's cabin. I was rehearsing the sermon. And right as I was finishing, my daughter walked in. And after I finished, she said, Dad, what's the point of this sermon? I said, well, that's a good question. Uh, so I tried to explain, you know, Leviticus. It's for maintaining, repairing the, the covenant relationship. And she said, okay, so it's, it's basically a bunch of rules on, on how Israel can cannot make God upset with them. I said, kind of. I said, well, okay, think of it like this. Uh, We just moved into a new neighborhood this fall, and so this summer they've had the chance to get to meet some of the kids in the neighborhood. They're starting to make some new friends. And I said, what if you're you're playing with this, this girl, this new friend of yours that you're just getting to know. You really enjoy having her for a friend. You're excited she's in the neighborhood. But then you hear later from somebody else that this friend is, is upset with you, that you hurt her feelings and that she doesn't want to play with you anymore. I said, what would you want to know? And she said, well, I would want to know what I did that, that hurt her feelings. I said, yeah, I think that's right. I said, what else would you want to know? She said, well, I would want to know how I could say I'm sorry. How, how could I make it right so that we could be friends again? I said, yeah, I think that's exactly right. That is what the book of Leviticus is for Israel. It's God's gift to them so that they would know how to not do things that are going to hurt God. And when they do hurt God, on purpose or accidentally, how they can say, I'm sorry, and restore that relationship. Now, there's a number of ways that people try and outline or break down the book of Leviticus. I looked at several. I made my own. Uh, But I'm indebted to the Bible Project because when I saw their outline, uh, it immediately made sense to me, and I kind of threw out mine and and chose to go with theirs instead. Uh, Because what they see is that the book is organized in a symmetrical structure, like a mirrored structure. So if you can imagine it folded in on its center, where the center of the book is the Day of Atonement, and and then on each side you have uh, a section detailing one of the three major ways Uh, that Israel can maintain this covenant relationship. Uh, Rituals, 
priests, and the purity system. Uh, so the mirrored structure, what, all I mean by that is if you were to read through it in order, what you would read is rituals, priests, purity, day of atonement, purity, priests, rituals. So I, I am, for simplicity's sake, going to group like sections together. I just tell you that so that if you read it, you can see what the author is doing there, how they've arranged it. So let's start with rituals. And I'll just say right off the bat, I I tried. I wish I had a less loaded term here. I I know the word has a lot of baggage, especially for Protestants. But really, by rituals here, all I mean is uh, is activities with prescribed actions that enact or embody a belief. Uh, They're actions that we fill with a specific meaning. And God here lays out two basic kinds of rituals, all right? Uh, Offerings and celebrations. Now, offerings are probably the closest thing to what we think of when we think about repairing a relationship with God. And if you read through these, you would find that there's two basic kinds. Offerings to say thank you, and offerings to say I'm sorry. If you think back to my recap of Exodus, uh, I think you can know just from that that Israel is going to need a way to do both of those things. Think about it. God rescues them, he feeds them, he protects them, If this is anything like a real relationship, they need a way to express gratitude for those things to God, uh, to say thank you for what he's done. A great example of this is the fellowship offering in Leviticus 3. If you look at that, you'll discover it's exactly what it sounds like. It's an offering that gives thanks to God simply for the gift of his presence, of fellowship with him. That might sound odd at first, but my first thought when I saw that was, well, this is crucial to all relationships, right? Whether it's your coworkers, your friends, your spouse, all healthy relationships need a way to express gratitude, uh, a way to say, I'm glad for the role that you play in my life. It helps keep the relationship healthy. And it turns out that's true for healthy relationships with God as well. Now, we know from Exodus that if this covenant is going to work and last, Israel is definitely going to need a way to say, I'm sorry. And God provides that too. If you look at Leviticus 4, uh, this gets into the, the, the part that I think is characteristic for most people of the entire book. There are provisions for detailed, specific provisions for all sorts of sins. Intentional sins, unintentional sins, sins that cause injury to others. Sins that don't cause injury to others, but are still an affront to the holiness of God. And in all these permutations, God provides a means by which individuals can express their remorse to God and can make the relationship right. We already know that Israel is going to struggle to keep the covenant and that times they'll fail and fall short. But God knows that too. And he has graciously provided a way for them to make that relationship right. So we have thank you and I'm sorry offerings. And at the end of the book, so the mirrored end, God also provides instructions for a number of feasts and celebrations. These are all tied to significant events in the history of God and Israel. And they help ground the covenant in that shared history. Now, if you think about this, not only do we do this in our personal lives with things like birthdays and anniversaries, we still do it nationally as well. I mean, today, just by pure coincidence, is actually the 4th of July. And if that is a national shared celebration for Americans that is rooted in our history, Uh, just as celebrating the 4th of July is meant to increase our sense of shared national identity and values, 
so too with Israel's feasts. If you look at the feasts at the end of the book, they are to remind Israel of who God is and who they are. They're rituals that strengthen the very foundation of the relationship. All right, so that's the first big way God gives them to, to maintain and repair the relationship. The second, as you read through the book, is the priesthood. Now, the first question you should ask, given my introduction, is, okay, I, I get how offerings, you know, saying thank you and I'm sorry helps maintain the relationship. How does adding somebody in between the people and God, how is that going to help maintain the covenant? Well, again, the answer here is, I think, to look back to Exodus. Uh, if you look back and remember the event I discussed earlier where Israel makes this idol and they, and they worship it um, right after agreeing to the covenant with God, what you need to know is that in the aftermath, God initially comes to Moses and he says, listen, Moses, take this people, and there's a little interesting note here, he says, take the people you brought up from Egypt. You know, earlier God says, I brought them up, but now he says, take this people you brought up from Egypt and you take them to the promised land the land that I promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Take them up there, but I'm not going with you. These people are stiff-necked. They're prone to sin. And if I go with you, I might, I might destroy them on the way there. Now, if you remember, this was one of the options, that God would just end the covenant, that he would move on. He, he would leave Israel to their own ways. Partnership over. And it looks for a moment here like that's what's going to happen. But then, Moses, on his own, does something amazing. Even though he wasn't involved in the disobedience, he had nothing to do with making or worshiping the idol, he comes before God and he stands as a representative of his people. And he pleads with God. He says, God, don't give up on us. Don't leave us. In chapter 33, verse 15, he says this, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? And what else will distinguish me or your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. What happens at this critical moment in the covenant history is that Moses stands in the gap between a sinful people and a holy God, and he pleads with God. He intercedes on behalf of his people. And God hears Moses' intercession, and he obliges, and he shows mercy. I think, if you want to understand why the Leviticus establishes the priesthood formally in the way that it does, all you need to do is see what happened there. I think what's happening is God is formalizing an arrangement that already worked in the past. Priests, if you think about it, have two fundamental tasks. They are to represent the people before God, as Moses just did there, and they are to, to represent God to the people, to speak on God's behalf to them. This is exactly what Moses does all throughout his time as the leader of Israel. Uh, he has acted as the high priest of Israel just without the title. And Moses, in that role, has already acted to, to heal the broken relationship. What God does in Leviticus is he looks around and he says, I think we might need somebody to do this again. And so he makes a provision for the priesthood. And of course, he's right. All right, so those are the two main ways so far of, of maintaining the relationship. 
Uh, you've got offerings and celebrations. You have the provision for the priesthood. And now third, you have the purity system. Hang with me here. This one, I think, is, going, is the most strange to us. Uh, but I think if you think of it this way, the purity systems, both ritual purity and moral purity systems, the purpose of both is to make God's expectations for the relationship clear. A clear communication is one of the keys to any functioning relationship. Uh, and Ingl uh, Leviticus does, it, it distinguishes between these two categories, ritual purity and moral purity. Uh, and ritual purity, I think, is harder for us to understand. Be, you know, in part, it has nothing to do with sin, and it's also just so far removed culturally from where we are today. And the best way I can explain it is like this. Where moral purity concerns our status, uh, ritual purity has to do with the proper acknowledgement of God's status. And thus, it specifically concerns worship. So ritual purity is composed of symbols that remind Israel that God is holy and that his holiness touches every area of life. That's why ritual purity will concern things like blood and bodily fluid and foods uh, and, and touching corpses. It's a picture of how God's holiness touches every aspect of their life. Uh, these practices help Israel understand who God is and what it means that he is holy. And you have to remember for a moment here, this is right at the beginning of the history of God revealing himself to humanity. Israel's in this relationship with God because of God's gift, but they don't really understand or know who he is. This is part of the way that God is revealing himself. Uh, and, and really, if you think again about any relationship, to be in a relationship with someone, you have to know something, understand something of the other person or else it's not really a relationship. This system is meant to do that. A few years ago, uh, I decided, all on my own, uh, that our, our household could use a new, larger television. Uh, my wife did not agree with that assessment, uh, mostly on the grounds that we had a perfectly functional TV already. And she found my arguments that a larger, higher-resolution TV would enrich our life to be singularly unpersuasive. <laughs> I know, it's, it's shocking. I don't understand it either. But I, I was lamenting this with my brother-in-law uh, about a week later as we're watching a football game. And as he took this in, uh, he came up with what we both thought at first might be a brilliant solution. He said, you know what you should do? You should just buy the bigger TV and you should give it to her as a present for Christmas. He goes, now, now you get the benefit of the bigger TV and you get the added benefit of having given her a wonderful, expensive gift. It's genius, right? Now, before you worry too much about the state of my marriage, uh, I just want to assure you, uh, it didn't take either of us very long to find the flaw in this plan, which was, as it turns out, not a small one, and that is that my wife would not have at all been pleased with the gift of a TV. Not only did she not want one, but giving her one is almost insulting because it says to her that I, as her husband, don't know her, and I don't know what she likes, don't know what she would appreciate, right? Right? Sometimes, when you give an inappropriate gift, that's what you're doing. You're saying to this person, I'm trying to be nice, but I don't really know you at all. 
I know the purity codes seem strange to us, the ritual purity ones in particular, but what they are is God helping Israel understand how to bring a gift to him in worship that is appropriate to him as a holy God. Appropriate to him as a holy God. These symbolic acts help Israel to take seriously God's holiness. Yahweh is not someone that you approach casually and he is not a God who takes sin lightly. They help Israel worship in a way that is appropriate to their God. So while ritual purity reminds them that their God is unlike other gods, moral purity, by contrast, reminds Israel that because of their covenant, they are not like other peoples, and their behavior should reflect that. They are God's chosen people. They are engaged in a partnership with Yahweh whereby they are to be, as God said, a nation of priests for the world. And how can they fulfill that divine calling, that special status? How can they intercede before God on behalf of other nations if they act just like the other nations, if they live just like everyone else? If you remember the sermon on Judges from a few weeks ago, you'll remember that was the tragedy of the book of Judges, that Israel had become indistinguishable from her pagan neighbors and thus utterly unable to fulfill her calling in the world. As a result, the moral commands that God provides in Leviticus are rooted in Israel's identity as the people of Yahweh. Look at the opening verses of chapter 18, or just listen as I read them. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and my laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. Did you detect a theme there? Why must they not do the things that the Egyptians and Canaanites do? What is the ultimate reason? What is it grounded in? Because Yahweh is their God. Not the gods of, of Canaan or Egypt. He is their God. Following these moral commands, which largely comprise compassion for the poor, sexual integrity, and doing justice, is crucial to their partnership with God and being faithful to the covenant because living that way ultimately reveals who they are and who Yahweh is to the world. Yahweh is a God of compassion and integrity and justice. And so the people who bear his name, the people who walk around the world with God's name stamped on their forehead must be too. This is how God chose to reveal himself to the world at this point in history, by choosing a people who would bear his name and who would reflect his character, and his priorities to the world. And so when Israel fails morally, they don't just violate the covenant. They jeopardize their ability to partner with God in his purposes. All right, deep breath. Those are the three main ways of uh, maintaining the covenant that God provides. But there's one last thing I want to touch on, and that's the Day of Atonement. At the heart of this book, full of just very specific regulations and rules, is an extended set of instructions on one ritual, an annual act of worship. And it is literally, I think, the center around which the whole rest of the book revolves. At the heart of this book is God's provision for the forgiveness of the sins of his people. 
Knowing they'll fall short, knowing they'll be unfaithful, God graciously provides a way for those sins to be forgiven, and he plants it right at the heart of their national life as a people. On the Day of Atonement, one day every year, what happens is the high priest comes before uh, the gathered masses of the people of Israel, and he brings with him two goats. One goat is killed, uh, symbolically standing in the place of Israel, paying the price for their sins. Uh, the, priest, the high priest then turns to the other goat, and he places his hands on that goat, symbolically putting the sins of Israel on the goat. And that goat is then led outside the camp, well out into the wilderness, and released on its own. And, and that is to be a powerful depiction of the fact that because of God's gracious provision in the Day of Atonement, that the sin of the people have been cast out from the community. They're gone. They're no longer there. It's a beautiful image, and if you think about it, I think you can see how it brings all the rest of the book together in this one act. Here, the provision for offerings comes together with the provision for the priesthood, with the provision of the purity codes. Because of the codes of moral purity, they know what to confess. Because of the provision for offerings, they know what to offer. And because of the provision of the priesthood, they have somebody who can stand in the gap and offer it on their behalf. And all of that is just the gracious provision of their God. And this is, I think, the first big insight, the main insight I'd like you to take away from the book of Leviticus. Relationship with God is now and has always been a gift of God's grace. No one, then or now, has ever earned it. The gift, and I promise you, Go back as far as you want, read at any point in Scripture, you will always see that the gift of relationship with God always comes first, whether you're talking about Israel or you're talking about the church. God simply chose Israel, revealed himself to them, and offered them a covenant. None of that was owed to them. All of it was grace, and it still is. A few weeks ago, I was at a soccer game for my girls, and I was doing what parents do. I was standing on the sideline, cheering for them, hopefully in a very tasteful way. Uh, but, you know, loud enough that they could hear me. Uh, after the game, though, I noticed that one of my daughters looked just disappointed, kind of sad, so I called her over, and I said, hey, what's wrong? Why, why you look sad? Oh, nothing, nothing. Well, after some prodding, I, I got her to finally say, well... I kept hearing you cheering for me, and you were always cheering for me, but I never scored a goal. I feel like I let you down. I said, oh, honey, first of all, first of all, there's more to soccer than scoring goals, and you played a great game. And she did. I said, but more importantly, I don't cheer for you because you score goals for me. I cheer for you because you're my daughter, and I love you. You don't have to earn my support you were given that for life the day that you were born. Friends, we often look at Leviticus and we think of it as a list of rules, or worse, works, through which Israel can earn God's favor. Even worse still, sometimes we view it as a burden around their necks. But nothing could be further from the truth. Those are all badly misleading because they ignore the central, most important fact on the ground, which is 
that Israel already has a relationship with God. God already chose them. He already said to them, you will be my treasured possession. He already wrote his name on them as a nation. They can't earn it because they already have it. All of that was just the gracious gift of God. God picked them and wrote his name on them and chose to dwell among them all before they had time to do anything to earn it. You know, I thought of this when we were singing the song right before this. If Leviticus is anything, it is the goodness of God acting like a fetter to bind the wandering hearts of his people to himself. You could do a lot better than that, or worse than that understanding. And the same, I think, is still true today. Whether you already have a relationship with God or you're sitting here watching this, still considering one, that relationship is still a gift, graciously offered by God to all who can receive it. There's nothing to earn. There's no threshold to meet. There's no entrance exam. While we were still sinners, the enemies of God, Jesus died for us. As Jesus himself still put it, I stand at the door and knock. All any of us needs to do is open the door. The rest is a gift of God. Second, second insight I think you can take from Leviticus this morning is that God has a purpose for that relationship. You'll notice maybe that I keep calling the covenant a partnership, and that's because it's transparently what it is. God invites Israel into a covenant whereby they can partner in God's purposes by being a nation of priests for the world. And if that sounds familiar, it should. The book of Hebrews tells us that we in the new covenant are also to be a priesthood of all believers. So while the relationship God offers is a gift of grace, it is a gift that comes with the privilege of participation in God's purposes. Like Israel, you and I, if we are, if we have called Jesus Lord, if we are part of his family, then we are called to live differently from the world around us. And hopefully that's not a surprise to any of you. Specifically, just like Israel, if we are going to intercede on behalf of our world before God, and if we are going to represent our holy God to the world, then, we, then our lives should reflect his compassion, integrity, and justice. And, in addition to that, we are called, and we should be interceding regularly before God on behalf of those who don't know him, especially, and even, for our enemies. My prayer for you this morning, coming out of Leviticus, for all of us, is that we would all of us know the joy of, uh, that comes through that gracious gift of relationship with God, and that you would also find joy in partnering with him in his purposes. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you even for the parts that are sometimes difficult, either difficult to obey or difficult to understand, as the case may be. Lord, we thank you for Leviticus and the powerful reminder it is of your grace. Lord, it's so easy to take for granted uh, what we enjoy today, which is the, the revelation of you and your character that we have in your son, Jesus Christ. But Israel didn't have that. You chose to reveal yourself to them. Uh, you used Leviticus to do that. 
And that wasn't a burden. Those weren't chains. That was a gracious gift of a loving God. Lord, I thank you that we too today, though we stand in a different covenant, I thank you that we can also stand with them and that we can testify that the relationship we enjoy with you is a gracious gift. Lord, I pray for any out here today, any who might be listening online, who have not yet made that commitment, who have not yet opened the door to Jesus Christ and said, yes, I want you to be my Savior and my Lord. God, I pray that you might give them the nudge that they need this morning. I pray that they would know that that there is nothing for them to earn, nothing for them to do. All they need do is to accept the gracious gift freely extended. Might they do that this morning? Lord, we thank you also for the other gift, easy to overlook, of partnership in your purposes. Lord, that you invite us into this relationship, but then you, you give us the added gift of meaning and significance that comes from partnering in your good work. God, I pray that you would help us as we try to live as a nation of priests for the world. God, might we reflect better your justice, compassion, and integrity. And I pray too, Lord, that you would call us frequently to our knees, that we might truly be the people at prayer at the places where the world is in pain. In your name we pray, amen.